We'll go ahead and take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 this morning. We're getting close to the end of the Sermon on the Mount together. And we're going to take 11 verses this morning. Last week we only took one, so 11 verses this morning. Um, so we can see the end in sight. This text is a bit of a difficult one, especially as it comes on the heels of the golden rule in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, which we looked at last week, where Jesus says to his followers, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So this morning what we want to do is we want to look together um, at Jesus' follow-up to this. He sort of shifts gears a little bit and begins to talk about something that we're going to key on this morning, which is obedience. What does it look like to be people who are obedient? What does kingdom obedience look like? So look at this text with me, beginning in verse 13, and we'll read through verse 23. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, or enter by it, are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This, thus you will recognize them by their fruits." Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Saul was Israel's first king, and to be honest, it didn't really go very well. It didn't go well for Saul. If you're familiar with his story, you understand that he reigned for about 40 years. And at one point, Saul was, we won a significant battle over the Philistines. And then he camped out. And he was told to wait by the prophet Samuel. He was told to wait seven days until Samuel came to him. And then they would offer up the post-battle sacrifices. But Samuel was late. Now, in our world, flights get delayed and things like that. And we, we understand that travel isn't a perfect science. And, but when it does happen, we tend to get frustrated. We, we check the time on our cell phones and we huff and puff around the desk at the terminal. And we walk around and we, we act annoyed. Or I do, at least. I don't know about you. But I can't imagine travel in the ancient world. So who knows what Samuel was held up by? Honestly... Scripture doesn't tell us, and that, that's really not, not part of the, the story. But he was held up. And we know that this, in this moment, reveals Saul's heart. Samuel gets held up, and we see it revealing Saul's heart. A week is a long time to wait, and the people, so the people who are with him, the people, his army, and then the people who came with him, the people of Israel, they start to get antsy. And the Bible says that they scattered. So Saul gets antsy too. As their leader, he's thinking to themselves, I need to do something in order to keep these people's attention. I need to keep their attention and keep them around here. So he offers up the sacrifices. He doesn't wait for Samuel, but just goes ahead and does it. And of course, Samuel then shows up right when he finishes. How many times has that happened to you? 
Or someone's like, hey, wait for me. And then you're like, I can't wait anymore. And then you do something and then they show up and you're like, oh, shoot, if I had just waited five more minutes. If Saul had just waited five more minutes for, for Samuel, he would have showed up. And so Samuel then asks Saul, he says, what have you done? What have you done? And Saul makes then three excuses. He makes three excuses. We're good at excuses, so was Saul. First one he says is, the people scattered. The second one he says, you didn't show up. And the last one said, I saw the Philistines and they were regrouping. And if those Philistines get their act together and come back and start fighting us, we're going to we're gonna have to do this whole thing again. We just want to battle. And I didn't want to go back into battle with the Philistines without God's favor. So I offered up the sacrifices. This turns out to be a pretty bad idea. Samuel says to Saul, you have done foolishly and you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. And for Saul, when it rains, it pours. So Saul continued to disobey and ignore the commands of the Lord. And it progressively gets worse until it gets to a point where Samuel speaks to Saul and he says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as an iniquity to idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And when I think about Saul, when I think about the blunders and the, the crimes that he commits here, I can't help but I think that he, was, he thought probably he was doing the right thing. Right? Saul didn't ask to be king either. The people asked for a king. And he was tall and he was handsome and he was rich and he was strong. In fact, Saul's name means asked for. He was asked for by the people. The people demanded a king even though they were, they were warned against demanding a king by Samuel. And when the, na the nation of Israel, their intent, why God chose them and set them apart was to be a light to the nations. To show the nations what it was like to live under the kingship of God and not the kingship of man. But the people in 1 Samuel 8.20, they demand to be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Saul was thrust into this situation, and when considering the victory in battle over the Philistines, it's not hard to see why Saul did what he did. At least from my perspective. He said, well, Samuel's not back. I'm losing the attention of the people. Surely God doesn't, as king, surely God doesn't want me to lose the attention of his people. Surely he wants me to be a good leader. And the Philistines are getting ready to fight again. Surely God doesn't want me to go into battle not prepared. Surely God wants me to go into battle prepared with his favor on me so that I can win the next battle. And that seems like a logical flow to me. And I can see how Paul got from point A to point B and felt good about his decision. And the problem is that he thought he knew what God demanded. And so he offered up this sacrifice, but what he really demanded was obedience. It's disobedience that made sacrifice necessary. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the garden and realized that they were naked, they covered themselves with leaves. This is in Genesis 3. But God made garments for them out of skin of animals. This is the first sacrifice that occurred. This is the first act of disobedience, which resulted in the need 
for a sacrifice. So Saul missed the point, and so do we so often. So we fast forward to this text in Matthew chapter 7 and what Jesus says to his followers and what he says to us. We can see three things here. We talked about what does this be? Kingdom obedience. What does it look like to obey as those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven? What does it look like to live in light of who the king is? And as Jesus closes in on the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount, when we get to the end of Matthew chapter 7, this is the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. We see three things about obedience that his followers need to adhere to. First of all, that obedience is difficult. It's not hard to get there from the text. Obedience is difficult. The second thing is that obedience requires discernment. We as God's people must be wise and discerning. And finally, obedience must be uncompromised. So first of all, obedience is difficult. We'll just take these texts in order here. Your Bible might have them broken up into paragraphs, beginning in verse 13 and looking at verse 14 also. Jesus says something very specific, but we see this in the story of Saul. Obedience is difficult. For Saul, there were a couple things pressing in on him, right? His own people, the upcoming battle, probably the stress just of a place of being a king. And he said, I just need to keep these people happy and we need to be ready to fight. And we see the commands of Christ, what Jesus outlines for us in the Sermon on the Mount, as we spent so much time here, that the Sermon on the Mount, what he outlines for us, we usually do the same thing. Take last week's command, the golden rule, for instance. If you look at it, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. The wholesale obedience to this command is very difficult. It's not easy. And it's not meant to be easy. It probably happens pretty regularly that you go to work and someone's just a flat-out jerk to you. Or it probably happens that, that your spouse drops the ball pretty regularly on something important. Or it probably happens pretty regularly that the people you have relationship with you annoy you or frustrate you. But whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. And there's no ifs, ands, or buts here. We talked about this at length last week. There's no ifs, ands, or buts here. And it makes obedience difficult. When Jesus says to us, enter by the narrow gate. And why does he say that? Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Why does he say that? Well, I think it's easy for us to say, to look at this text, 13 and 14 in particular, and say something along these lines, something that is completely true, but something that's a little bit easier maybe than Jesus intends. We say, well, there's only one way to the Father, and that's Jesus. Jesus says, I am the gate, therefore we should enter into eternal life through Jesus. 100% correct. I'm convinced, though, that Jesus is talking about more here. He says, more than just I am the only way to the Father sort of way. That's 100% true. We need to keep that in our reservoir, but we also need to understand that Jesus is saying more here. I think what he's saying is, it's hard to obey. It's hard to obey. Obedience is hard. The life of the kingdom citizen is lived in the way that I'm describing in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is difficult. If you think that you want to go to the moon, I don't, I don't know, if you want to go to the moon, 
Say that you want to go to the moon. I don't know if anybody wants to go to the moon. Say that you want to go to the moon, but your calculations are one degree off, and you launch the rocket or whatever you go to the moon in with a trajectory that's one degree off. By the time you get to the place where you should have gotten to the moon, you'd be 4,200 miles off. You're a long ways off. The gate, the entry point is narrow. And a life of obedience is difficult. And as kingdom citizens, we should feel the weight of it. This is why Jesus says what he says. The gate is narrow. Enter by the narrow gate. Wide gates are easy to enter. Narrow gates are hard to enter. If you go through your day never thinking about what your king has called you to, this should be a wake-up call. These two verses should be a big wake-up call to us. If we go through our day without ever thinking about what the king has called us to, as kingdom citizens, again, we should feel the weight of this. Jesus' words should rattle us. It is a narrow gate, not a wide gate. And those who find the narrow gate, those are few. And as kingdom citizens, we should regularly ask how can I obey my king with my job? How can I obey my king with my money? How can I obey my king with my marriage? Or how can I obey my king in my parenting? Because you obey your king in your job by submitting to the authorities over you, by showing up and not stealing time, by not cutting corners, and so on and so forth. And you obey your king with your money by, feel, by freely giving of it. And by living outside, inside of your means, not outside, inside of your means, by not worshiping it or finding security in it, by stewarding it, fully knowing that it belongs to your king and not to you, and so on and so forth. You obey your king in your marriage by not demanding to get something out of it, but by laying down your life for your spouse, by listening and comforting and being present, by loving and respecting, and so on and so forth. And you obey your king and your parenting by caring more about your children's eternal soul than the immediate future, by trusting them with the or trusting the Lord with them, and by training them to know God and to love Him and to love others by acknowledging the immense responsibility that God has given to you, and so on and so forth. As kingdom citizens, we should be regularly thinking about what our king requires of us. And if we're not, we need to begin to. And none of these things are easy. These are all very difficult things. Again, wholesale obedience in these areas is very difficult. But as hard as obedience is, and it is hard, you have the strength inside of you to live in obedience to the Spirit of Christ. We'll talk about this a little bit more as time goes on. But a life that is lived, that ignores the commands of Christ and the word of Christ and the obedience that's required is a life that is hurtling towards what Jesus says here, destruction. Kingdom citizens are actively living into obedience and not ignoring it, despite the difficulty of it. And we should heed Jesus' words that the road is hard and that there are few who find it. This, is, this takes us back to a discussion that we had just a couple of weeks ago. We say that Jesus is our Savior, but it's a little bit more difficult. In fact, it's a lot more difficult to say that he's our Lord. In a sentence, that's easy to say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. But in reality, in actuality, to say that he is our Lord is a difficult thing to say. 
So the question is, do we see obedience as a negotiable part of the Christian life? And maybe you say, well, well grace covers all of this, so I'm, just not going to worry so much about it. I'm just going to set this aside for a little bit of time. If that's your response, then grace has come to you on your terms, and you've made yourself king. And in front to God, and you are his enemy. But the grace of God, the free gift of salvation, doesn't come to you so that you can do whatever you want. It comes to you so that you might be what you were intended to be. Let me say that again. The grace of God doesn't come to you so that you can do what you want. It comes to you so that you might be what you were intended to be. In Romans 6, verses 1 through 4, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized with Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life is what grace brings about. Newness of life is what grace brings about. We redefine grace when we continue to live like citizens of the world. And we all set on the path that leads to destruction. But the grace of God that actually that God actually gives brings about newness of life and produces in us obedience. This is not just a try harder situation. But Paul says in Ephesians 2:10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Obedience in the good works that God has prepared before us comes flows from him, not from mustering up the good work inside of us. So if you say that Jesus is your Savior, you must take him as your Lord and King of your life. If you say that Jesus is your Savior but not your Lord, then he's also not your Savior. And you have proved yourself to be on the path to description. So obedience is hard. That's what Jesus is saying here in verses 13 and 14. Obedience is hard, but newness of life includes the Spirit of Christ who is making you more like Christ. And you are now living into that obedience, living into what God has intended for you. So secondly then, obedience requires discernment. Obedience requires discernment. Look at what Jesus says in the next chunk of text, probably the next paragraph in your Bible. Verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. If you, as a kingdom citizen, are going to live a life of obedience, you must be discerning. What does that word mean? What does it mean to be discerning? This is the definition that Tim Chowies gives in his book. It's called The Discipline of Spiritual Discernment. Discernment is the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. So in order to obey, we must understand what God commands of us and what his word says. So obedience requires discernment. 
And in Jesus' example here, he gives us prophets. Beware of false prophets. Now, oftentimes we think of prophets and we think of fortune tellers or something like that, sort of like in a Harry Potter sense or something. But the biblical understanding of a prophet is someone who is called by God to rightly apply God's word to people in a particular context. Very simple. There's someone who knows and understands God's word and can give it to the people in an easily and digestible way so that they can live a life that's commensurate or consistent or in step with what God commands. And so a prophet said, here's God's words. This is what it means to live these things out in your specific situation. And now Jesus says, beware of false prophets. Essentially, beware of people coming into your midst and telling you that God says to do, the, to do this or that. Just be on red alert. If someone tells you that God is telling you to do something, just hang on. Be discerning. Be wise about it. And this thought finds itself all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 13. The first three verses. Moses writes this, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. So he's saying, test people who claim to know what God wants you to do. Test it. You must be discerning. You must understand what the word of God says. And if he's telling you to do something other than to love the Lord your God or to love your neighbor as yourself, if he's telling you to go after other things other than the Lord your God, then you need to put it aside. You need to just chill out with it all. And how does Jesus tell us then that this test is conducted? How do we find a false prophet? How do we find someone who is, who is leading us astray? How do we find someone who is not speaking to us exactly what God would have for us. He says, you'll recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus says, consider their behavior, their own personal choices, their own personal obedience. Are they living like kingdom citizens? Are they trying to build their own separate kingdom? Are they obeying Christ's commands or are they making their own path? Now this is in particular difficult for us because we are such a private society or at least a curated society. What do I mean by that? Like social media. We, we only show people the things that we want to show them, but we keep to ourselves in a, in a very distinct o, o way. And so there are people that we find ourselves around almost daily. We know literally nothing about them, how they conduct themselves in their home, how they conduct themselves with their children, how they conduct themselves at work. Our society is very segmented and fragmented and private in that way. But we have to ask these questions, right? If someone is saying, God says do this, then we need to weigh them and, 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 and uh, recognize them by their fruits. Are they living like kingdom citizens? Or are they trying to build their own separate kingdom? Are they obeying Christ's commands or are making their own path? And Jesus says you should weigh how much stock you should put into the guidance someone gives you by the way that they live. And someone who lives a life of faithful obedience to the word of God is someone who you should feel comfortable listening to. Someone who lives a life that is in opposition to the things God commands is someone you should take with a grain of salt. And unfortunately, again, our culture struggles with this idea. And we've 
Christian culture in, in general has lost this entirely. Partially just because we have access in almost in, in, in just a ton of different ways through the internet or, or Christian radio or wherever we, wherever we find ourselves. And this is one reason why the local church is so important because lives are on display here. Lives are on display here in a way that they're not in many other contexts. And so many of us here probably listen to sermons online or read Christian books or listen to Christian radio. And you may hear something that sounds good in a sermon or you may online sermon or you may read something that sounds good in a book or you may hear something that appears beneficial on Christian radio. But if you have little or no window into the life of the person who is saying that thing, and how does that person manage his or her finances? How about his jo- her job? How about his or her marriage or, or parenting? You probably don't know much more than secondhand accounts. Now this to us probably feels a little bit strange. This probably feels a little bit like, well, isn't that judgment? Aren't we passing judgment on someone if we, if we ask these questions about them? It's not what Jesus says. He says, look at their fruit. Look at their obedience. Look at the way that they're living their lives. This is how you'll know if it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. In college, I, I witnessed a, a pretty prominent Christian musician yelling at, uh, yelling at her staff over something that was seemingly insignificant, and I wasn't passing. It was literally like 10 seconds. It was not a pretty moment. And she was thought of highly in the Christian music, songs on the radio, etc. Well, I don't, I personally, I don't know what happened before or after that incident. I have no window into what happened before or after that incident. And I was tempted to assess that person based on that incident. But I'm capable of doing that because, again, I had a 10-second window into this. Maybe she asked for forgiveness and was really worked through the conflict that she had with those people with, which, with whom she was so upset. But maybe not. I simply don't know because I don't have a bigger picture. I don't know her. I don't know her life. And if we cannot know because we don't see the life on display, then we should be very wary. We should proceed with caution. And social media, again, not a window into someone's character or life. It can be highly deceptive. We say things like, well, I, I know such and such is a godly person because my roommate's second cousin, second secretary's grandmother... She goes to her church and said that she was nice. The people that we prop up in Christian culture are usually people that we don't know. I'm not saying that we shouldn't listen to sermons online or read Christian books. Or No, that's not what I'm saying at all. We just need to introduce discernment into those activities. Something that we've largely lost just because of the availability If a book claims to be Christian but tells you that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy, chuck it. If so-called Christian radio tells you to, 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 that your voting habits are more important than loving your neighbor, turn it off. It is rare that these mediums are able to be to, subjected to Jesus' line of testing here. You recognize them by your fruits. 
You will recognize them because they live their lives of obedience according to God's word. Saul's problem was that he lacked discernment to understand what God required of him. As king of Israel, Saul lacked the discernment to understand what God required of him. He offered sacrifice when obedience was required. And what I recognize, what makes this difficult for us, is again, that our lives, when they're on display for people, what I recognize and makes difficult for this, for, for me in particular, is that I'm saying a lot of things up here this morning, and that means that my life needs to be on display for you. This is the difficulty of this. You should never walk into a church context and listen to what is taught, but have no idea how those who are teaching it are living. But you can't do that without a firm biblical understanding. It's not good enough to feel something. I just don't feel right. That context doesn't make me feel right. I walked in that church and I just didn't feel right. What needs to happen is careful, concerted, biblical analysis that leads to conversation. People sit in pews or blue chairs like we do here and wonder who the leaders of their church really are, not quite sure how to make sense of what's going on. And the kingdom citizen is called to discern and to be discerning in who they follow because this will directly affect his or her personal obedience. So obedience then requires discernment. Finally then, obedience must be uncompromised. And when we talked about obedience being difficult, that sounds, it's, it's hard. It sounds difficult to us. Look at these, the things that Jesus has said throughout the Sermon on the Mount, all these things are so difficult. As we talk about obedience being uncompromised, I'm just going to unpack that for us. But coming off of talking about how to properly discern, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This are you kidding, Jesus? This is so difficult. These people are saying, Lord, Lord, they're doing the right things, or at least appear to be doing the right things. Why are they being sent away and called workers of lawlessness? That seems so harsh. They're doing the right stuff. And you, but you'll remember, so much of the Sermon on the Mount is geared towards this idea. Jesus isn't interested in doing something. He's interested in being something. The kingdom citizen is the one who does the will of the Father. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The kingdom citizen is the one who does the will of the Father. In order to do the will of the Father, one does not need to do the right things, but also has to be the right thing. To have the correct identity. You cannot do the will of the Father apart from his strength. You cannot do the will of the Father dependent on self. And that's exactly what people in this example are doing in the example that Jesus gives. They say, look at all this great stuff. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? We're prophesying. 
We're casting out demons. We're doing mighty works. What Jesus is saying here is nothing that you do, not even supernatural works, can earn God's favor. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, Under the greenest sods worms hide themselves. We need not look for long to discover them. And underneath what appears to be amazing accomplishments achieved by these people are pollutive motives and self-absorbed intent. And again, consider King Saul. He saw the people getting restless. He didn't trust the Lord to maintain his status as king and order the people or order among the people, but he trusted his own actions and abilities and offered up the sacrifice. And he saw the Philistines preparing to come back, and he didn't trust the Lord to go before him in battle but he trusted in the act of the sacrifice, the ritual instead. But obedience is not about the action that's taken. This is where this gets really difficult in our minds. Obedience is not about the action that's taken. We usually reduce obedience to an act. But obedience to God is not limited to an action, but is rooted in God's favor shown towards you. It's an all-out submission of all that you are. So when I say that obedience must be uncompromised, I'm saying that from the perspective that I think Jesus has. That you can do everything right externally. You can do mighty works. You can prophesy. You can cast out demons. But if if it's all for nothing, if you aren't favored by God, if who you are is not found your identity in who he is. We often say that, oftentimes, we look at the Pharisees and we just say, look at those guys, their heart just wasn't in the right place. They did a lot of good stuff externally, their heart just wasn't in the right place. And then we say that in such a way that it's something that we're capable of doing, but it's not something that we're capable of doing. Later, Jesus would say to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, he's quoting Isaiah 29, he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus' point isn't that we need to get our act together internally as well as externally, but rather that our hearts need to be made new. Our hearts need to be made new. The Pharisees, their heart needed to be made new. The Pharisees didn't miss the point about keeping the law because they tried to do the right thing externally. No, they missed the point about keeping the law because they didn't have a heart of flesh. They had a heart of stone and a heart of flesh was needed to do the will of the Father. New creatures, kingdom citizens, have hearts of flesh and can obey without compromise. It is 100% necessary to be made new first. But that heart of flesh can come from nowhere other than God. And you can't earn it, like these people say in verse 22, through supernatural works, even in the name of Jesus. And you can't earn it, like the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day said, by keeping the law. It is a gift that comes from God alone, and from it proceeds true obedience. If you're here this morning and you started reading your Bible in 2018, maybe you made a resolution, maybe you thought, I'm just going to read my Bible more in 2018. And you're thinking, maybe you started at the beginning. There's like these books and they've got tons of requirements. And you're thinking to yourself, boy, this has got a lot of stuff to do here. Take comfort. (laughs) Take comfort. Why? Because, well, the religious leaders in Jesus' day could give commands, 
but no strength to keep them, Jesus could and did both. He said, here are my commands. Here is what I require you as my, as my people. These are the things that you need to do. You're incapable of doing them in and of yourself. So I'm going to come. I'm going to recreate you. Make you what you need to be. And then this true obedience will flow from it. What he says is just a couple chapters after the text that we're looking at this morning in Matthew 11. Verses 28 through 30, Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, he's referring to people who are thinking to themselves, I've got to do these things that the religious leaders are telling me that I have to do in order to earn God's favor. And what Jesus is telling his people, his followers, his disciples, is that you do not have to do these things to earn God's favor. God's favor already rests upon you. And so, now, you can do these things. Every time we think that we obey in our own strength, every time that we think that obedience comes from somewhere inside of us, or we need to muster it up, we miss this point. Jesus tells us to take his yoke upon us. We need to learn from him. This is where we find rest for our souls. An easy yoke and a light burden. Understanding that what God requires of us comes out of what he's done for us. And what he's done for us is not contingent on what he requires. So Jesus is saying that the burden of people felt and their obedience was lifted in him. Obedience is now possible because those who are in Christ are favored by God and given the strength to an obey in an uncompromised way. When I think about Saul, when I really think about all of this, it seems so counterintuitive. So much of my world is embedded in productivity and, and doing things in order to prove to, the, to prove to everybody else that I'm good enough. That I'm good enough, I, I struggle with this every single day. I sit in my office and I produce a sermon and I come up here and I preach it to you. And my identity sometimes becomes so embedded in that. But God says to me, as my child, you are favored regardless of what you produce for Sunday morning or what you do throughout the course of your week. He says to me, your obedience is not contingent on the things that you're currently doing, but in understanding your identity in every aspect and area that you find yourself. And so this seems so counterintuitive to me because of the way that I'm inclined, because of the sin of my heart. I want to show you how, how much I can, I can demonstrate and communicate effectively to you when I just simply can't do this. And when I look at Saul, I think to myself, what would I have done differently? Probably nothing. Wouldn't I have grown impatient? But I would see the people scattering. I would see the Philistines getting ready for some more war. And I would have thought to myself, I need to maintain some control. Let everyone know that things are progressing. I am their king. Make, make it look like I know what I'm doing. Samuel is late. And that's the inclination of my own heart. I can feel that pull. But as I look at that, and I look at the life of Saul, and I look at it in his name that means asked for, 
The people asked for him in their own sinful inclinations to be like the other nations when they were meant to be set apart from the other nations. They say, we need a king. And they're given a king. They ask for him. They get Saul, whose name means asked for. But the one who came after him, Israel's greatest king, King David, his name means beloved or favored. The one who comes after, greater than the one who comes before. And so David clearly shows us the most important point of all of this. He shows us Jesus. The beloved son. The favored one of God. Jesus is the new and better David. Saul was favored by the people. He was big and strong and rich and handsome. He was favored by the people and lived and ruled far from the required obedience. David was favored by God, but he too lived life far from perfect obedience. But through the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, we, as those who have trusted Christ, can obey. And Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in his life show us this. He never strayed from the narrow gate. Or the hard path. He discerned without error God's word. His obedience was done in God's strength and in perfect harmony with the will of the Father. And so he is the one that we trust. Not the people who seem to have good ideas. Not paths of comfort. Not amazing works. Things that appear miraculous. The life of Jesus gives us the portrait of obedience and in his obedience, even to the point of death on the cross, he gives us the strength to obey. The natural outflow of the kingdom citizen is an adherence to the commands of Christ, to the commands of our king. And so Paul writes then to the Romans in Romans 5.19, For as by the one man's, that's Adam's, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We have been made righteous. We have been favored by God in Christ. And now we can, with our whole being and without compromise, obey. Let's pray.